Hey, y'all. Uh, and what we wanted to do tonight is to be able to talk back and forth and I cover what would kind of be considered the prosecution side of it while she'll cover the defense side of it. And if you've listened to it last week, then you know that the case is not cut and dry uh, and it actually ended in an indictment or the, the suspect who was the father in the family and the husband was charged and then later uh, was convicted, and then later was exonerated. Am I here? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> can you see me? Yes, can I see can me? see you. I hope everybody else can see y'all. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to <laughs> Night Shift with Andrea of late. Uh, what kind of night shift would it be without some kind of kerfuffle in the first 30 seconds? Uh, if you guys are new here, this is a true crime podcast, so keep that in mind for any little ones that are around, but as we've said before, if you're here, you know what you're getting. So, uh, yes, uh, BC Sanders is here. He's my co-host tonight, joining us live uh, on the YouTube Andrea Uplate channel, and then you can listen tomorrow wherever you stream. We are covering the Hendricks family murder case that I covered last week. So I will do a brief recap of that. But then, like he said, we are actually picking, uh, we're lawyering up. So court is in session and we are going to try to defend positions. Uh, keep in mind, this does not mean either one of us feel like uh, the defendant at the time, David Hendricks, the husband and father in this case, is innocent or guilty. We'll talk on our personal opinions after the fact. We're literally here to provide you what the court was able to provide when they attempted to and ultimately were successful in convicting him back in 1984. But then just a few years later, he took that to appeals to the Illinois Supreme Court and won. It was overturned and he has since lived a free man. So either this is a man who has gotten away with a most heinous crime or it's a man who's been failed He's he's the fifth victim in this in this story, meaning his wife and three children were murdered and then he was failed by the system. It's one or the other. Uh, pretty much have. An idea on this one, I'm, I've gone back and forth. I think that's why this case is interesting. Uh, I've, I've been conflicted on my personal opinion, which obviously matters none here. However, ultimately, it doesn't come down to whether or not you think he was guilty or innocent. It comes down to should he ever have been convicted in the first place? So we'll talk a little bit about our legal system here in the United States and how that works. Uh, if you're a new listener to the podcast and you're not watching live on YouTube, this is a live show. You will occasionally hear us engage in the chats. We've got a lot of friends who follow us here on Night Shift, and so it's always fun to talk to them. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can hit subscribe. doesn't cost a dime. And uh, you can also be a part of, I don't know, what, guys? The, the night shifters. What did somebody say? Night owls? Night owls. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I thought that I was super too. cute. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the last known president said, should have brought Rob on. That's a good one because he's a lawyer. That's a friend of ours from the one more and I'm out of here uh, podcast. But uh, see some 
familiar faces in the chat. I know, BC, they're happy to see you here. Would you like to tell everyone who may not know who you are, what you do and, and who you are? Yeah, I, I appreciate coming on. Um, yeah, I do recognize some people in the chats. Just so everybody's aware, I can see the chats, can read them. <clears throat> I just can't type and respond. So I apologize for that. Uh, my background is uh, over two decades in law enforcement. Most of it's gang work and homicide work, uh, multiple levels as detective and as supervisor, uh, as a sergeant and as a lieutenant. Um, so just that kind of background, loved it, uh, and enjoy having a chance to be able to talk about this case. I, like Andrea said, I, this is not... I'm not saying anything about the case other than what we understand from um, open sources and that sort of thing. So we're talking about um, just just that part of it. Uh, I, I'm not giving my opinion necessarily either way. It's just I have to take on the side of what will be um, the prosecution side. And, so and, let uh, me tell you why that is, guys, because with his vast knowledge in these kinds of things, meaning homicide, meaning occasionally having to be an expert witness in a trial, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and just with that being his life's blood and his career, prior career, you know, I'm giving him actually the hardest side of this. Uh, I never in my life, if you're a defense attorney out there, like I give you mad props. It's not something I can imagine doing. Also, it's, I've been more interested in the idea of what that looks like ever since really getting into this case. So in this case, defense attorney, easy peasy. It, it's really too easy in terms of sitting here talking about things. Um, it's actually much more difficult on the prosecution side. So that's why I'm giving it to BC because he has more brain cells in this arena than I do. So he has to work on and flex them a little bit harder because I think that's kind of the point of this case is that the prosecution didn't really have a lot, but we're going to go head to head. We're going to see, uh, see how this is. So if you did listen before, just bear with me while I do a quick highlights of the case. And if you haven't, then maybe this will give you enough to stand on to listen to our arguments as we defend our positions here. Uh, this case happened in Bloomington, Illinois in 1983. All right. So it was November of 83. Uh, I will go flat out to say that I have read as many sources as possible. I have listened to as many podcasts as possible. At this point, I'm almost done with the book that was written on the case. I just started a few days ago. So we've talked about this before, but be careful when you, I say be careful, I'm taking it seriously, but it matters to me that when you listen to a true crime podcast, you know, that that facts are correct. Like, and we've said it before, but I don't think that people often come to, you know, just to be um, malicious in, in their lying about it. You know, I think that they maybe just don't follow up or the source was wrong or whatever. But I found inconsistencies in almost every case that I've looked into. And this one is not any different than that. And so um, to this day, there's conflicting sources as to what day this man left to go out of town when these murders happened. And that's actually a really huge detail. So keep that those things in mind. Um, and, and let's get to it. So David Hendricks was married to a woman named Susan. Be careful also when you look up this case, because the name Susan Hendricks, if you just type that in, she, a separate woman named Susan Hendricks more recently, uh, committed a terrible crime of uh, murdering her children in South Carolina, different woman. The woman we're talking about tonight was a victim in a very horrendous slaying really. So David, 
uh, dad, husband, he was 29 at the time. He was married to Susan, who was 30. They had three children, Rebecca, who went by Becky, who was nine. Grace was seven and Benjamin or Benji was five. All right. So they um, were part of this brethren church. It was um, it was a very fundamental, almost like Puritan based church. They didn't have a TV in the home. They didn't, um, you know, I'm not saying here, here nor there, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. These are the facts, though, and these are things that were later used in court. So they were part of this very, very fundamental idea uh, church. And David was a smart dude. So from early on, he excelled in school. He winds up going to this college that he graduated kind of at an accelerated rate to learn about like prosthetics and orthotics. He went on in his early to mid 20s to begin developing, patenting, manufacturing, selling these products. So his main cash cow was this back brace. So if you think of someone with scoliosis uh, or something like this, like the brace that they can wear under or over their clothes. That's important as this case moves on as well. Uh, he developed a system for that and he sold it. And so he was heads above his peers financially in his mid to late 20s. So by the time this case, this crime occurs, uh, he had motorcycles, he had an airplane, airplane hangar, this home they bought for cash, uh, again, all at 29 years old. So substantially, um, uh, successful and, you know, all these kinds of things. So on November 7th, we're going to go with that one. There are discrepancies on the 4th, but either way. So on the 7th, it was a Monday. All right. So David was set to go out of town that night. So when he went out of town, it was so he could go. If you know any, you know, modern day stuff like the, um, not pharmaceutical sales, but like medical equipment sales, people who sell, you know, the, um, hardware used in knee replacements or whatever. I worked at a hospital for many years. You'd see these, they'd come through and I would always think, why didn't I take that job? Because they're dressed nice and they make four times more money than I do. And then they're about to go home and I'm not. So this is the kind of thing he would do. And he would go to hospitals and doctor's offices to kind of, um, you know, pitch his idea for his product and have them purchase it. Uh, they did. And it was called the cash system, C-A-S-H. Uh, I've got it here somewhere. I want to make sure I say it correctly. It stood for cruciform anterior spinal hyperextension orthosis. And so, like I said, it would be for someone with a crooked spine or let's say a scoliosis. Okay. So when you hear us talk about the cash building, cash ink, it's not, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about that was the name of his product. Uh, you can buy one today. They are still on sale. Uh, he is currently living in Florida and these things go, I think last week when I looked it up, they were around 119, 150 bucks on sale right now, if you need one. And maybe you can talk to David Hendricks about his life or don't. Um, so yeah, moving forward on the seventh, he was going to go out of town, which was not unlike David. He often would go out of town at night. He liked to drive at night to get to the next location to pitch his product and be gone for a day or two and come back home to his family. Mom, Susan was a homemaker. She stayed home with the children. Uh, and that's, that's kind of their life. So on this particular night, again, guys, we're just hitting the highlights, but Susan had gone to a baby shower, uh, that evening in a town about 35, 40 miles away. Her mother was there. A lot of her friends from church were there at this baby shower. 
And meanwhile, David was home with the kids. He took them to Chuck E. Cheese. They ate a vegetable pizza, which is um, actually important in the case. They we have we'll talk later about the timestamps on all that, but we have timestamps on a lot of these things I'm mentioning now. So they ate the pizza, drank the root beer. He's proceeding to fill his car up with gas and get his suitcase packed so he can go on this trip later. So he and the kids come home. He starts to get them ready for bed after a game of hide and seek. And then mom gets home, Susan, from the baby shower around 1030, 1045 that night, uh, which all plays out with, with what witnesses have said that were with her there at the baby shower. The next thing you know, we just have the, the rest of anything we know is going to be David's account of, of the night. So he says that the kids were tucked in bed around 930 p.m. and that he and his wife had a brief conversation. They were actually talking about um, adopting a little boy. Uh, Susan had not too long prior had a hysterectomy. Again, could could be note to some. Uh, prosecution theory. Yeah, you're going to make a note of that one. If that's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you keep talking. <laughs> you write your note. Flip the newspaper. I'm going to win this case. Uh, <laughs> and so she had had a hysterectomy prior. And so they wanted to talk about potentially adopting a little boy. This is the conversation that David says they have before he leaves. He kisses her goodnight, he says, and heads out of the house between 11 o'clock and midnight, depending on the source uh, that you read. So, he leaves to go to Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin specifically, which was between three and three and a half hours away from their home in Bloomington, Illinois. All right. So mom and kids are home asleep. He gets there in the wee hours of the morning. He winds up, he checks into a Red Roof Inn and he starts making his calls. He's going to these hospitals. He's talking to people about selling his product. Uh, the day goes on. Again, guys, it's 1983. So we always like to take you back to where we were, right? We didn't have cell phones. People were not alarmed if they didn't reach you the first one, two, or five times they call. You might just be outside or anywhere, right? Unless you had an answering machine, you wouldn't even necessarily know someone did call. So if he's calling home a lot and she's outside, she wouldn't know she missed these calls from him. So the day goes on the day of the 8th, and he says that he's making all these calls uh, and can't get her. He's not too concerned. He kind of goes back to work. Uh, with these doctors and would occasionally call in when he could from the hotel. So as the evening approaches, though, he begins to get more concerned per David Hendricks. That night, his wife, Susan, and the children were supposed to be going to her brother's house, uh, Nate's house, for a like a dinner party with the family. There were supposed to be, I believe, 13 people there, which would include herself and the three children. So they were supposed to get there, I believe, at 5.30 or 6 that evening, and when that time comes and goes, he now starts to get worried. So he calls her brother, he calls her mother, who is actually, he talks to her there at the brother's house. And then now they start getting alarmed because now they realize, okay, he hasn't talked to her all day. And now she's not showing up at the place she was supposed to be at. So they, they meaning Susan's mother, separately from David, who was out of town, both wind up calling 911 to kind of do essentially a welfare check. So we'll read, I'll read the transcripts of that. We have that call transcripts. We do not have the audio. I have searched everywhere to get the audio of David actually calling in and I, I can't find it anywhere. Um, so I don't want to play. There's like a mock-up version, you know, like the imitation version of someone reading it. I don't want to play that because 
we're not going to be able to hear his intonation, like the way his voice, you know, kind of might tilt or not depend, you know, and how, if he stutters, if he sighs, if he sounds full of emotion or not, we can't hear that. So I really don't want to hear someone else. I mean, you'll be hearing me reading it, but you won't confuse me with him. Okay. So when you listen to the imitation ones, it's a man reading it as an actor trying to sound like David. I don't want to do that. So he goes 911 and basically he's saying, I haven't talked to my wife or kids all day. I'm concerned that she might've gotten in a car wreck. This is unlike her. So they go on to have that kind of conversation. Local dispatch assures him that there's been no wrecks called in, that no one of that description, name or car, maker, model, uh, basically go about your night. It's fine. So he decides to go on and hang up the phone and start making the trek three hours back uh, home to Bloomington because uh, he's just not convinced that everything's OK. Meanwhile, uh, some time goes on and mom sends the brother and brother-in-law over to Susan and David's house to check on them. Well, they get there about the same time that local authorities get there to do a welfare check. When the authorities go inside, they have the family members wait outside. Thank goodness. And when they go inside, um, they find a very horrific scene. So Susan is in her bed, uh, a blanket over her, which we will talk about the position of the blanket in a moment, if that's something you've read about, mm. Sam. Um, so Susan's laying in the bed. She has been murdered. Uh, there's blood everywhere around her. You can see gashes on her. They don't quite know exactly what's happened just yet. Then they go to another bedroom to find uh, the three children. So the two girls, Becky and Grace, nine and seven years old, shared one room with two different twin beds. And they generally would just sleep in those. But little Benji, who was five, had a different bedroom. But he often would climb in the bed with one of the girls. And he did that this night. So um, police find Becky in one bed and Grace and Benji in another bed. All three had met the same fate as their mother. And that's when they find the murder weapons lying on the bed beside Grace and Benji. Uh, they were an axe, like a full-size axe and a butcher knife. So all four family members were wounded the same way. They all had butcher knife wounds, many three out of the four of them to their necks um, and axe wounds. Uh, in saying that the two little girls, Becky and Grace, had the least amount of wounds um, to their, all of their wounds were to the face and neck. Um, they had the least amount. Mom had a little bit more, but Benji had about three times more than any of them. So Benji was much more viciously murdered to the point that they talk about um, like his mandible. So basically his bottom jaw was almost completely uh, gone. So horrible scene. We'll get into what that crime scene looks like as uh, BC and I break down the case. But that's what happens. And then David gets on scene. So basically, we'll just kind of leave it there mm -hmm. and go from there and uh, and go back and forth. Because all I'm going to give you the spoiler alert is that moving forward pretty quickly, cops have their nose on David, meaning that night. OK, so then a little bit of time goes on. They surveil him for a while. They bring him in for multiple interviews. Uh, I will say that he quickly submitted clothing, anything that they needed uh, to search him that same night. Uh, he was never disagreeable in that sense. But 
they not long goes by that they go on and um, arrest David for they're able to indict him on the charges of murder for his four family members. About 10 months goes by trial happens. It takes the jury about five hours to deliberate and they come back with a guilty charge. He was sentenced to four. He was convicted of four counts of murder. Um, I'll read you in a moment what the judge said, because essentially the judge is saying, I'm not even saying that I don't think you did this. I think you did. And I mean, no disrespect to the jury. I'll read you his verbatim quote here in a moment. But he's saying that there was not they couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So he's actually kind of saying that he actually didn't agree with the verdict, even if you believe him to be guilty, that, that that's not how our justice system works. This was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and so because of that, he could not he could not agree to the death penalty to capital punishment for David. So. He gives him the sentence of 120, 140 years, whatever. So he goes off to prison. David's only there for a short time, two or three years. He uh, fires Hal Jennings, who was his um, original defense attorney, who just retired back in 2018. He, he was practicing until then, hired two new defense attorneys and appealed his sentence. This goes to the Illinois Supreme Court and it was overturned and he was let set free on everything. Um, and he now is living in Florida with a wife and a couple of little kids. So he's living a free man and has been ever since like 1990 or something. Um, and he's either guilty or he's not like we talked about. So, yeah. <clears throat> um, and I just want to say, I wasn't obviously part of the case. I don't know every little detail. Holding you too, so right? I, I, I do want to say that as we're talking about this, this is all based on the information we have. So neither one of us were there during the trial nor during the investigation. So some stuff, meaning like if I say something or I misspeak, correct me. Or if I do, I apologize. It's only what I know third hand. Well, so <laughs> I, I'll say right off the bat uh, what we always look for. Um, and, and I know I'm taking the prosecution side. But we're always looking for that timeline and we start from yep. that timeline and figure out, could the person, um, the the killer, whomever it may be, actually be in the crime scene, in the location? And if they can, what proof do we have of that? What kind of evidence do we have of that? So you had mentioned um, them going to Chuck E. Cheese and kind of that mm -hmm. timeline. And if I'm not mistaken, the detectives early on had interviewed a bookmobile operator mm -hmm. who was basically like books you would get from a vehicle, like a van or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, like a mobile library. That person could at least confirm that was the last time or that was they saw the kids. Correct. At that time. So what I didn't tell you guys during the highlight just now, if you go back for for real, though, if you guys are just listening, um, and you didn't hear part one, if you go to either Andrea Uplate YouTube or Night Shift with Andrea Uplate on Spotify or iTunes or whatever, you can listen to uh, Hendrix Family Axe Murders part one. And that is like the whole case in detail, all the timelines, autopsy, all the stuff that we'll touch on now for like the, the, the trial, right? Like the trial portion, but you'll get those details. You're correct. So when David and the children left Chuck E. Cheese, they actually rushed home first to grab books that the children needed to return 
to then go to this bookmobile, which you are correct. It's like a library on wheels that would come to certain neighborhoods and you can kind of check out books um, or whatnot. So that's what they do. Um, and that bookmobile operator confirmed what David had said, which was that he and the kids were there around 8 p.m. the night of the 7th and that um, he's, he, he saw them and he he or she, I, I'm not actually seeing what gender it is, but the bookmobile operator will be the last person outside of the family that mm -hmm. can confirm seeing David and the children. Yeah. So basically now you have a window that you have to look at and say, if that person's correct and what they're saying and the timeline is correct. And that puts them at about uh, 8 PM ish that time there, no one sees them again or can confirm any kind of uh, presence or, or them still being alive until right. the next day when the police uh, and family respond. I mean, it's almost it's at this point, like 24 hours later. Exactly. Yeah. So when in the first episode, when you had talked about the crime scene and the family going to the house to do basically like a check on welfare and the officers responding out there, what should happen is that that scene, that house, when those officers enter that house, it should kind of be like um, everything stops in time. In other words, they may bump some things. They'll 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 know what door they go through. Um, usually, for the most part, uh, if it's at nighttime, officers are going to be using flashlights because you don't want to tamper with light touching switches. Anything. Yes, touching anything. And that would um, be you. And I'm asking this question. Mm -hmm. This is not what I do, guys. I've, I've been a nurse for a long time, so that would be just across the board your general practice for a welfare check. Yes. Okay. Yes. Usually okay. is that. Um, and this is 1983. And you also have to look at the city. The um, There's around 135,000 people in Bloomington in 1983. Right. And the homicide rate was not astronomical. They're not battling um, a lot of violent crime, I don't think, in that sense. So, yes, it could be just a basic check on welfare. They go through the home. They check it. One of the things that would we would be looking at is light switches. If light switches are on or off. Okay. So light switches use it off when you're asleep. So like you had talked about in the first episode, how um, sadly how the victims were found and located were in beds. And I think it had been documented and reported as if they were attacked in their sleep. Correct. As best they can tell, mm -hmm. um, both girls were laying on their right sides uh, if you picture a child or anyone lying on the bed, so they were lying on their right sides, covers up, mm -hmm. um, like up to their shoulders. Again, most or all wounds were to the neck and face. Okay. So to what was already exposed. Benji was lying on his back with his leg dangling off the bed. So face up, which caused some investigators to say they you know you'll you'll read and and you know you guys you know this right so if you're into these kinds of things and you read these cases all the time you'll see this often but people will say something and it could be true and it could also just be speculation like so be careful to take something as fact it's moot now to be fair and i hate to be callous like that it, i guess it doesn't matter but they'll say you know they think that potentially benji saw his killer maybe benji did maybe benji didn't Benji also could have just crawled in the bed with his sister and she kicked him because he, you know, he moves in his sleep and he's laying on his back with his leg hanging off. That doesn't mean that he woke up during this. And maybe he did. Um, someone argued that he did. And that's why he got 
the most vicious of the attack, like someone kept on, but this is a five-year-old boy. You don't have to keep on to kill him. Yeah, I mean, one, one mm. acts of faith. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I hate to say it that way, but I don't like that argument that like his was most vicious because he woke up during. There's not reports of anything on his his arms or the rest of his body. It's all to his face. So I, I don't think that he may have woken up, but that's not why he has the most injuries. Yeah. So looking at once you're once you realize it's a crime scene, you've got victims in the bed. If no one is tampered with the light switches, then you have light switches that should all be off. They use their flashlights. Perfect. Okay. So then light switches should be off in the off position. Correct. Um, and then you go, and, and the only reason I would mention something like that is that's where you would want to fingerprint or check the status of it and document it. Cause if the light switches are on, then that, that may be that, you know, people usually don't sleep with the light switches. Right. On. And I'm kind of, I know I'm supposed to be the prosecutor side, but if the light switches are on, that would potentially indicate, especially in, in, in multiple rooms that the murders have happened. And they then, weren't. They were all off, correct? As far as I know, prosecution. <laughs> okay. Well, and I apologize. I don't know every detail. Overturned. The way you do. Yes. Um, <laughs> and when we've talked about this case, it is, it's tough for me to understand. I will say it. I've put him in a tough position. Because, a horrible position. A horrible position. Because I'm really giving him something he can't do. No one can do. And that's kind of the whole point of this. It, it's the idea of look in our justice system. You know, everything has flaws. For the most part, we do it the best the justice system does it the best they can. And the whole idea is reasonable doubt. Was this proven beyond reasonable doubt? I, it's taken me a long time looking at these cases to understand the difference, not understand, but to be okay with the difference of that's completely separate issue from guilty or innocent. Can you prove it? And the reason we do this and we'll go right back to the details, but the reason we do this is to prevent innocent people from being convicted. Now are innocent people convicted? Yes. Let's talk to John Grisham, Innocence Project. That's my next project. Anyway, but and are guilty people set free? Yes. But this is supposed to mitigate most of that. And so, you know, and I've read the quotes lately and, and it's tough, but true. Uh, life is tough, but true. That I would rather see, well, I say this until it's certain cases, I guess, but someone guilty walk free than someone innocent be in prison for the rest of our lives. You know, that's a tough one. I guess we could get in the weeds with that, but, but that's the idea. And that's why we have to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. So I threw this at BC knowing full well, I've looked into it far more than he has. He doesn't have the details. I do. I know that, but ultimately it's just kind of, it goes back to the, the point of this show, which is to say there wasn't reasonable doubt or beyond reasonable doubt proven in this case. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on if David is is guilty or innocent. Right. But. And I do want to say that I have the ability after two decades of doing it to look back and go, well, in 1983, this one case, you know, and I can have my own personal opinion about it. But we also study cases like that sure. and learn from it and then say, you know, I just don't fully understand why they would have indicted at that time. So when you're talking about murder, it's right. one of those things, too, that you don't it, it's like we always had to say, like, this is not a rodeo. Like everybody just slow down. Take a minute. 
Yes. And so you look for the temperament like that in a homicide detective, a homicide unit is you want the detectives moving slow in that sense. Yeah. It's hard sometimes for higher ups or maybe an elected sheriff or a chief or someone pressure from yeah. politics to want to go out there and charge. I don't know if that any of that played into this. Well, we'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I will say that you just you you have to look at everything um, objectively. So right. early on, that's why I say in a, in a crime scene, you're you're keeping all of your um, all of your senses open from from light switches to um, the, the status of the blood to so you can recall correct in case there is. You know, in case it's not just grandma fell and oh, good yes. thing we got here. In case there yes. is something malicious that took place, you can recall specifics. Yeah, you usually you you err on the side of caution and and try not to do that. Yeah. You try not to tamper too much, and then especially once you see that there is a decedent, you know, in in a home like that, then you still have to clear it to make sure there's no threat, um, because it's not like in the movies. Uh, I mean, there have been cases of people that have committed murder and still been on scene. So, course, yeah. so officers do still have to clear the, the house and they can tamper a crime scene in that sense. They, they can bump a piece of furniture. They can move a piece of furniture. They may flip up like a couch to look up under it or something. And then when they set the couch back down, it's misplaced. So sure, that can happen. Or it could be Jean Benet and they can invite the whole neighborhood over. <laughs> That's what happened. Okay. I, I do want to mention there was um, a comment made earlier about um, killers returning to the crime scene. Mm. So I don't want to get off on a tangent. That is very true. Uh, but it's not always someone returning to a crime scene necessarily to see their work or to see the police response. That can happen. Uh, sometimes it can be they're coming back into that area because they live there. They're a next door neighbor or they're whatever. So I don't know if that comment was in reference to this case, as in... I think it's just like theorizing. Was someone, yeah. So what you got next? So we know that we established <laughs> that the bookmobile operator yes. saw them at 8 p.m. and confirmed yes. what David said to be true. Yes. So obviously, you especially in 1983, you'd still be able to pull receipts. So you would go back and pull receipts mm -hmm. from that restaurant in Chuck E. Cheese and basically be able to say, if he's saying he was here then the receipt should corroborate that and can potentially, if you get the receipt, tell you kind of what time they paid, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Would you like me to tell you the times? <laughs> no, that's okay. Well, for people listening, maybe. Yeah. No, no, so we know that they ate their pizza and this comes, this becomes a huge part of the trial uh, is that they, that they ate their pizza. They got there around 6 30 PM and ate it at seven. I think it arrived to them at seven and between seven and seven 30, they were mentioned on this veggie pizza. It was a medium, so approximately 10 slices. Dad ate one slice, and the kids kind of split the rest between them, and they had a pitcher of root beer. Perfect. And that was at 7, mm -hmm. between 7 and 7. Yeah. I, it's just, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to, I know, to explain I know. it. I don't, I just based off of what I know, I don't fully know um, how he was charged so early on. So, um, that's, huh? well, that's the point. That's, yeah. the, that's the question most people have with this one. Yeah. So before we move into the 911 calls, um, which which basically without hearing the 911 calls, we've read I've read the transcript um, mm -hmm. that you had, and again without hearing someone's inflection and um, pauses between certain words, it's kind of tough to say. You can still kind of key in on some some words and that sort of thing. Um, 
So it's tough on the prosecutor side to be able to argue that either way or well, to be able to support it. Yeah. yeah, I can read some of that now. Mm -hmm. So guys, I, like I said, I just printed it off. Um, and it's pretty bland to be fair. And like he said, it would be much more, we would get much more of an indication to hear David speak when he made the call. But basically this was November 8th uh, at 635 PM. And the dispatcher says Bloomington police. He says, yeah, this is Dave Hendricks calling from I'm up in Madison, Wisconsin. I live in Bloomington and I'm on a business trip right now. I'm a little concerned about my wife and kids because I've been trying to call them all day and haven't gotten and he's cut off. They say, where do you live? Any answer? Keep in mind, transcripts aren't always verbatim. It's kind of like when you read closed captioning, it's not always going to pick up correct words. But it says, I live at 313 Carl Drive. Now, here are the circumstances. Mm -hmm. That's I've I'm written not, it. Okay, yeah, I've I'm written not it. Prosecution side, but <laughs> no, um, and I don't. I don't mean to laugh. I'm I'm, I'm laughing because yeah. you keyed in on the same thing I did. Yeah, I've yeah, got. I don't like that. You know, handwritten notes that are blue and red, and yep. I and that's actually what I wrote was. Now here are the circumstances. Yep. yep. So he's um, giving them the scene. I'm not the prosecutor here, but I, yeah, I would like to be. I've tried to call them periodically through the day and haven't gotten them. I'm sure it's no big deal, no big emergency. But uh, there's supposed to be a dinner date tonight around 5.30. So I called there to talk to her there and uh, they never showed up there. What's your wife's name? Susan Hendricks. And they're not at home because I called a neighbor who's gone over to the house and knocked. So I think they might have been in an accident between Bloomington and Delavan. Probably took Stringtown Road. Now, Delavan was the town 35, 40 miles away that Susan was at the baby shower from. Dispatcher says, okay, what's your, well, that we can go out to Carl Drive and check on that. There's lots of ums, ohs, you know, as you can imagine in a phone conversation. He says, well, the neighbor's been out there. They're not home. Well, then you should be calling the county. Oh, I see. Do you have their number? So they kind of go back and forth about him needing to call a different jurisdiction. They do that. And he, I wonder if you have this in your notes. Mm -hmm. uh, he makes a point to say, okay, I'm making these calls long distance. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be any way you could check this out for me. And they say just a moment. They go back and forth. So he does the whole thing again, speaking now with a different jurisdiction. Um, Can they I interrupt say, real yeah, quickly? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know I don't want to spend money on phone calls, but also I live on a budget. But I'm just saying this is also a guy who paid cash for or, or, or bought. Yeah. And he, toys, motorcycle, motorcycle, plane. So, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I would think that a long distance call probably wouldn't hurt his wallet. Oh, I don't mind much. that he's calling long distance. I think it's interesting that he's saying he's, calling that's what I'm distance. saying that. Yeah. And that he's saying, can you basically call around and do this since I'm calling long distance? Is he Well, not I think if I'm thinking that he did it, mm -hmm. then this may be one way to kind of cover himself already. Yes. He's getting ahead of it by saying I'm calling long distance. So when they check the red roof in mm -hmm. to see why we're not seeing all these phone calls he's making. Right. Mm -hmm. He then explains that later by saying they were on his credit card. Gotcha. He, mm -hmm. he gets ahead of them by saying my long distance calls are on my credit card. Yeah. So then you wouldn't have known that, but I know mm -hmm. that he said that to them later in an interrogation, in an interview with them, with mm -hmm. investigators and they do. So in one of the interviews they have with him pretty quickly on, they say, you say you made all these phone calls to check on their welfare and you know, all these things. And you called family members and 911. But when we check the motel, the red roof ends uh, records for you, 
we, we don't show all those. We only have a, whatever it was. I believe now I've gotten it mixed up at 37 or 50 cent, whatever it was. It was a few cents. It was less than a dollar charge to your phone bill at the Red Roof Inn. And he said, well, they're just like every other Red Roof Inn. You pay the one time flat fee of a few cents and you can make as many calls as you want to on their dime. And he said, all the rest were long distance calls and they're on my credit card. And he says it very quickly and matter of factly. Mm. And so that's why when we go back and read these 911 transcripts and he says, I'm making this call long distance. That could mean nothing. This mm -hmm. could be someone who's saying like, I'm out of town. I'm just letting you know that. But the the fact that he was so quick to say that to investigators, the way he said it, just so factually. Yeah, I guess I was looking at him also trying to get them to get more. Yeah, like urgency because like, yeah, he can't urgency be there. And also more. Um, I mean, sometimes people want to want to set up the person to find the crime scene. In other words, they distance themselves from it and then kind of bring in a family member or something like that to check on welfare. Yeah. So that's why I was kind of reading it in as, you know, instead of him calling all these. And either way, I'm not saying, okay. whether, you know, I got you. Mm -hmm. So they say just a moment and a different sergeant gets on the phone He's talking some more. He he explains to them again that he's been trying to call her all day. He called earlier. Uh, they say, you think she was involved in an automobile accident? And he says, well, I'm guessing she probably took off for the dinner date and didn't get there because she's not home. The neighbor's gone and knocked at the house and she's not there. All of this is pretty straightforward, honestly. Um, he says, I'm trying to get to a point where she got, they ask a description of her car they go back to check to see if there had been any calls for, you know, dispatch about a broken down car or an accident. He says that they've checked both the there and the County. There's no report. And so he says, again, I think she would have taken this specific road. They kind of go back and forth with that a little bit. Um, and then I think that this was to your point earlier, BC, but the Sergeant says, okay, or excuse me, Hendrick says, okay, I'll tell you what, can I leave you with my number? And then the sergeant on the phone says, oh, does she know where you're staying? And David said, no, she doesn't. And so he said, OK. So he says, just in case something turns up, I haven't been able to call her. Really, it's area code this. He gives the number. I'm in room 110 motel on Madison Street. Yes. You had a thought about that? Yes, because if he's traveling, especially in 1983, you don't have that device in your phone that either people are tracking you know, it's 360 life or whatever, or even just saying, Hey, when you get there, I'll call you or text me, whatever hotel you're going to stay at. Even if you didn't have plans ahead of time, whatever. It sounds like he already knew that he was traveling, you know, a week in advance. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, the assumption would be that he would at least let her know which red roof inn he was staying at. Cause I would assume he made, you know, reservations a week in advance. Well, and per what BC's saying, uh, at his office at the cash industry office that he worked at or that he owned, he only had one other coworker, a woman named Beverly Crutcher. And she confirmed that he already had this trip planned. So for people who think that this was a quick, he snapped and killed him and then made up the excuse of a work trip. She said, no, this trip was confirmed about a week prior. Um, so to BC's point, had he had this trip planned a week prior he would already know what hotel you was staying at. If you guys can remember back then, like we weren't booking things online night up. Right. So it seems odd that the wife wouldn't know where he's staying. And then my point to that was just that, well, the way he described to the investigators that, well, that's like that at every red roof. And when he talked about the phone calls 
it sounds like maybe that's where he always stayed was Red Roof Inns. So maybe he just left it up to her to know that if he's going to Madison, Wisconsin, he's staying at the Red Roof Inn. Mm -hmm. What we don't know is if he stayed there before. Um, And and so I don't know if like in the 911 call when they say she doesn't know where you're staying, you'd think he would say, "Uh, she probably knows, but she doesn't. You know, I I don't know, you know, if that's in the weeds or not. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so he goes on to call. Then the Indiana State Police basically says the same thing about her missing his concerns. They tell him they haven't had a car report of a broke of a broken down car that night. Um, he again says this particular road he wants them to look at. He spells his last name, uh, and that's that's pretty much it. So that's kind of the transcripts of the nine one one call. The the here are the circumstances at the beginning when he says, "Okay, here are the circumstances." That's where I get. Yes. Yeah. Funny. It's it, those are those are key phrases that I, I heard or I, when I read it, I thought, hmm. It sounds like let me tell you the picture. Yes. And and the circumstances of a case. Like a lot of people just don't, I don't know, they don't they don't always um make references that way. And that's a small thing. Like that doesn't mean he's completely guilty or anything like that. You just when you're looking at things. A lot of people use terms like red flags or indicators or, you know, um, just like an anomaly that stands out like that. So it's okay. Getting to the crime scene, though, one of the things that I would imagine the the investigators and the prosecutors were were looking at was the fact that the weapons that were used was an axe and a knife that belonged to the family. Correct. Okay. Okay. So if someone is investigating the crime and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, then we have the instruments that were used because if, if I'm not mistaken, they were what appeared to be cleaned and left on. So this is a point that some will talk about that this looked almost um, either ritualistic mm-hmm. or either um, almost caretaking, which seems counterintuitive. But these weapons, the axe and the butcher knife, as BC said, were cleaned to the point of nothing on them. No no smudges, no n- nothing. And they were lying on the bed where Grace and Benji were um, on that one twin bed in that room with the, the two beds and the three children. So, uh, yes, those weapons were there. They both did belong to the home. And David um, was questioned about, they didn't say, do you own an axe and a butcher knife? But they asked him... Uh, about certain things that might be in his home. If you listen to the interview and he said, they say, do you own any, whatever they kind of started broad, you know, chainsaws, do you own any, do you own any hatchets or anything like that? And he said, I've got an ax. And they're like, Hey, where would that be? And he was like, Oh, it's out in the garage. Do you have any uh, knives? And he was like, I mean, regular kitchen knives is what he says. So that's kind of how he answered the question. Okay. But yes, they belong to the home. Yeah. Which would be, the first kind of like uh, when you're when you're looking at probable and what you can prove and then you're saying, well, OK, we've got the murder weapons. We're going to process and we're going to look for finger. Back then they would look for fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you're looking at, OK, if the axe and the knife belong to the family, where was the knife located or where was it normally stored? And then where's the axe normally stored? Well, axe was in the garage. Knife was in, knife the, kitchen. Was in the kitchen. So then you have to assume you're looking at a suspect who, if it's an outside person who's coming into the home, they're coming in there with no weapons and their actions, the the multiple victims, it seems to be the motive of the crime is to kill. And so the idea is you're going to go somewhere 
without the instrument that you're going to use to kill someone or multiple people. And you're going to bank on trying to find that somewhere in the home. Mm -hmm. So then someone could speculate, well, they knew the lay of the house. They knew where to go to look for it. I mean, eh, maybe, mm -hmm. but that's probably why early on the detectives and the prosecutors were looking inside the family and saying, you've got an ax from, from here, what appears to be here in the home and a knife from here in the home. Why would anybody do that kind of thing? You know, and that's where you start to look at experience and go, have, have other detectives seen this before? Do they have any other murders that match this kind of pattern in that state or in that region or that area? But I, I don't know. It's, it is strange. It's, it's, right. I mean, mm -hmm. well, I'm only saying this because we're an hour in and we got a yeah. lot. So, um, and we don't have to keep doing it this way, but if you have more stuff and we can kind of go off of those things and we can talk a little bit more about the crime scene right now, if you want to, because we got some details we haven't touched on. Yeah. It would be interesting for the prosecution. Yeah. I would say let's stick, just stick with the crime scene because that's, I think probably the crux of early on why they thought, you know, right. he was a suspect. So when you get into the whole lot, uh, the whole image of the, blood being on the walls, that sort of thing that you had mentioned in the first episode, there potentially being voids with the spatter on the walls that would indicate that the attacker like stood between the two daughters and, and right. being in the bed. Um, sometimes when you get into that, it's like, okay, so then th there is blood being transferred throughout the air onto the wall, on the clothing and stuff. Well, we'll, does the attacker still have the clothing on? And if that's the case, why? And I don't know the crime scene because we don't get to see the crime scene photos. Again, this is the same thing. Like if you're the investigator and you get to see the crime scene, you'll remember all those details and you'll know, okay, the crime occurred here. There's blood transfer onto the walls, onto the ceiling, you know, um, on the floor here, but there's right. no other blood transferred anywhere. So how does that happen? Does the killer have blood? On their person right so that's a great question or statement everything that we've read and you can only imagine you know if if these people are murdered with axes and butcher knives there's going to be copious amounts of blood and so per the spatter experts right we know that can go either way because defense is going to have theirs and prosecution is going to have theirs but facts are facts it's going to be a lot of blood loss regardless so uh there's indications initially that yes as bc mentioned there would be almost i can't say an outline but kind of think in your head outline of a human on the wall meaning that whoever did this stood between the two beds um, where two children were in one bed, one child was in the other and went to work. And the way the spatter pattern landed on the wall, it was almost void of what looked like a human being outlined. So that would mean that that person is absorbing that blood that didn't get to the wall, meaning this person is covered, straight covered. Now, one of the investigators has said since and, and at the time that this was the, quote, cleanest uh, bloodiest crime scene ever, meaning this would be a, an incredibly bloody crime scene, but there were not large amounts of blood throughout the house. In fact, there was only the large amounts of blood in the rooms where the victims were lying. Outside of that, they hardly found anything and they tried. Um, so to your point, <laughs> sorry, Michael Hendricks said, are you still on this? I'm telling you, I don't know anything about this. Uh, same last name, different, 
uh, different family here. But um, so the, you're exactly right. We don't have pictures of the crime scene. I've tried hard, not because I'm trying to see these children like that, but to see the actual scene, these, even though the trial has come and gone and been overturned, um, these have been kept pretty tightly hidden, which is ultimately a good thing. Uh, but what we didn't talk on today that we did last week is that it, there was a staged burglary scene. So there were some, you know, a little bit of furniture knocked over, some disheveled stuff, some drawers pulled out of cabinets and dressers and those kinds of things. So what's interesting there, though, is that while these drawers were pulled out, there was no blood inside these open drawers. It was all on the outside, meaning all of that happened after they were killed. All right. So they pretty quickly realized this was a state stage to look like a burglary. Um, we all kind of, I think at this point can understand that if someone's coming in for a burglary, they're very likely not going to be axe murdering the rest of the family. What's up? Can I interrupt? Of course. If furniture is knocked over, that can either be one, someone stumbling through the dark and bumping furniture over. But one of the red flags is that all the victims were in their beds. So there's no struggle outside of the bed. So furniture shouldn't be knocked over. So that may have and been everything a red was flag. clean. Exactly. There's no blood on this furniture as if someone had committed these murders and then was trying to leave and knocked over whatever these these pieces of furniture are. Yeah. I can say sometimes stage crime scenes without getting into too many of the details or the telltale signs. People often do it in a very amateur way I'm because sure. they're not. Uh, criminals who are doing burglaries or that's not, not what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah, so. that's what they're I went into it. Um, Jonathan Bates and I covered a while back the Billy, Bill and Peggy Stevenson case, which I won't get into, but it was one that was um, really, really graphic, really, really tough. And these, this elderly man and woman were killed very, very violently. And we know later on after some other things that the killer spit, a long time at the crime scene, but same thing. It was set up to look like the house had been, you know, kind of staged mm -hmm. to look a certain kind of way. And you quickly realize that was a stage, you know, that's a setup. And so yeah. that's what happened here. That's not been disputed on either side. That was never a point in the trial. That was um, a question. It was very obviously mm -hmm. staged. What did come into question, however, is that they never, they meaning investigators did not release to the public or to news outlets that the house looked like it had been burgled or looked like it had been staged to have been robbed. Right. So one of their red flags for, I'm going to give you, give you a nugget prosecution. One of their red flags for David was that he, in the day after this happened, this happened, he gets home at nighttime really late. And the next day he accepts interviews from a lot of local news agencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he talks to all of them and he says he mentions that, you know, it looks like a couple things could have been stolen. Mm. They never told him he was not privy to the to the house, to the crime scene. So right. he had not been in there and they had not told him that it looked like anything was set up to be robbed. Mm -hmm. So they immediately were like, why would he say that? No one even told him that it looked like a robbery at all. Later, he will say, or you will hear accounts of that he overheard 
a detective or investigator talking to someone else about the crime scene looking like a robbery. <coughs> Bless you. <laughs> Sorry. This is very did unprofessional. Did y'all cover your ears? Did that like reverb through the... Oh, no, ooh. so he, in theory, shouldn't have known that. But then he says he overheard it, which honestly he could have. I mean, I don't, that could go either way. That is possible. But that is also one of those things that oftentimes in the investigation, you don't put a lot of detail out there for that reason. So if someone does slip up and say something, I do want to um, address one of the comments. It's scrolled up some now, but it was in reference to murder cases. How big a factor did politics play yeah, when, when it comes to-, comes to finding the perp and placing blame um, on someone? With homicide investigations, it's people can try and put pressure on someone, but it's one of those things where detectives do their job. And if someone is charged, they're charged based on evidence. I I can't speak on all other agencies. I can only say my experience has always been we were left alone to do our job and we did it. So it was very nice that we didn't have someone saying we got to put something out to the press or, hey, this is this needs to be addressed. I. So my experiences have always been really positive with that. I don't know what other agencies are like. And I'm I'm sure, you know, when you study throughout history, there have been other departments that have had that problem. But it's not like in the movies in that sense. And I would say that a lot of times when when a crime like this happens, <clears throat> especially that's, you know, multiple victims in a home and it appears to be the motive is murder, then the news is warning information out there. And agencies are not very fast or very quick to put information out there because of the integrity of the case. So citizens get upset. They get frustrated. They think that the detectives or people aren't working that hard. And really all they're doing is trying to work the case. The information doesn't need to be put out. Yeah. Uh, That's true. That's true. This one's weird though. So Mm -hmm. yeah, this one is weird. Uh, Don't read my comment. So um, Anyway, with with that, we know that the it had been staged to look like a robbery. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point of saying that, you know, potentially furniture was knocked over because they were hurrying to get out or whatever. This is very calculated. This was not a disorganized crime scene at all. So uh, we have nothing in terms of in, in terms of evidence at the crime scene. We have the knife and the axe that had been wiped clean. I will tell you, I have read more about the history of axes than I prefer to know. There is not one hard timeline or date when we started using in modern day times, um, a metal versus wooden handle for an ax. I do know that that ax handle was red, but I don't know if it was painted wooden red or if it was a metal red handle. I would like to say wooden because it was 1983, but I can't be certain. I'm saying that because um, they, meaning crime scene investigators have said that there was no blood found uh, nothing found on the murder weapons. If it were a wooden axe handle, blood would be seeped in it immediately. It's porous. You wouldn't be able to wipe that off no matter how much bleach you use. We will talk about bleach in a moment as well. But those knives were there. Let me talk really quickly about the mother, though. When Susan was found in her bed first, she is lying on her side. She has axe and butcher knife wounds to her face and neck as well. It appears as though she also did not wake up. She appears to have been sleeping when this happened Mm -hmm. without waking. And saying that, the first person who arrived to investigate the scene, once the initial guys get there and see like this welfare check has gone incredibly sideways, call in all the reinforcements. 
first investigator gets there and actually gets angry and yelled, who moved the blanket? And he said that because he said that to him, this is a great prosecution point, the blanket um, on the mom, on Susan, was pulled diagonally down off of her face in such a perfect way that it didn't look like that's how she would have gone to sleep with it, meaning it looked like it had actually covered her fully and then just the corner been touched and pulled down diagonally. So let's talk about that. Let's say she's a very sound sleeper and she goes to sleep the same way every night and that cover doesn't move. Even still, even if she slept through getting hacked with that axe, just the movement of that axe, a person standing beside the bed, you know, their hips potentially on the comforter of that bed. This is not going to be such a straight, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 45 degree angle line on this comforter mm-hmm. that's pulled diagonally down across her face. So mm-hmm. he said, he yelled and said, who touched this? He was angry. And they were like, we didn't, that's, that's how it was when we got here. Mm-hmm. And that was one of his first red flags was that, no, it looks like it's <clears> been pulled down. Why would that be? Why would that matter guys? Why would that matter? That would matter because if someone did that, potentially someone who knew the victims, Mm -hmm. they might want to cover that face up until they're done there entirely. And then they need it to look like she was just asleep in the bed. Um, That would be the theory behind why that would make a make a difference. Right. So that's another little tidbit of the crime scene. Now, uh, you want to talk luminol for a moment? Yeah. Two seconds. Someone mentioned Rampart in the comments. And all I'm going to say is. Uh, yeah, read up on it. Rampart, LAPD. It was in reference to pressure about charging people oh. and murders. Uh, there's a book called Labyrinth uh, out there. Gosh, about... is it like the movie? No, nothing Thank like God. the movie. I hate uh, that movie. Yeah. I don't like it. It's not. I say it every time. It's not a good movie. It's a horrible movie. Um, it's bad. But Labyrinth, the book is good. It's about. Um, uh, it goes into into in depth with LAPD. I won't. I won't sidetrack us but yes davy uh it's it's good um i did not experience anything like that which is good so luminol i think is what you had mentioned before i interrupted yes mm-hmm. so initial accounts show that again back to the piece that there was no physical evidence we have nothing so the only thing that they had was and we've not even talked about this but there was a partial footprint on the dining room floor. I will quickly, it's getting late. We've been doing this for a hot minute, but I'll quickly talk about the fact that um, Susan was known to be a very meticulous house cleaner. And this is not just per David's account. Her mother will attest to this. Her friends attest to this. Um, Some will argue on the other side that this was pointed, that this was kind of part of that, their kind of puritanistic like religion that he was a bit of, you know, kind of alpha male with her and almost like she was made to do so. Others will will argue that she was a homemaker and she enjoyed having a clean home. Either way, she, there was the footprint there and David has said, and, and again, others have corroborated that she did her like deep cleans on Monday. This crime in theory, as far as we know, happened on a Monday night, meaning she would have done her deep clean that day. And that matters a little bit later when we reference actually the bathroom down the hall near the crime scenes. But the footprint, David has always said later that there wouldn't have been a footprint on the kitchen floor. Uh, She would have cleaned that, meaning that that happened after the murders. Okay, now 
in regards to the footprint, we don't know if this was the sole of a foot, if it was like a barefoot, if it was a sole of a boot, a flip-flop, a sneaker. We don't know. No one has said. We don't even know what it was made of. I don't know if it was like mud water, if it was blood. We don't know what the footprint was made of. That is the only physical evidence they have. And the only reason I think it's not anything they can use is because it wasn't used. It wasn't used in the trial against David Hendricks. If it was something they could have used, I'm sure they would have, and we would have read about it, mm -hmm. but they didn't. Yeah. Um, so that's the only physical quote evidence that we would have that is something that's a little bit askew, right? Now, in terms of it being the cleanest bloody crime scene ever, which were the words of the investigators that got there, down the hallway upstairs where the bedrooms were, where the bodies were found, in that bathroom was nothing, right? So they look at it, they see nothing at first, everything is clean, and then they eventually do see the smallest smudge of blood on the count, like the bathroom sink counter, okay? Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before. Had they not seen that, I'm sure they still would have luminoled, still would have checked the place for blood, uh, but they did see that there. And that's the only, to me, everything I can read, that's the only, to me, like mistake anyone made was kind of like leaving this one minuscule smudge of blood. So they tested. Uh, I think most of you are aware at this point, but luminol, there's a couple of different ones now, but at the time, luminol, I think was the big hitter um, in terms of, yeah, you, you put it out and it's going to, it's going to hit, it's going to glow bright, kind of like a black light uh, to, to blood. Now they go around two, three o'clock in the morning. They meaning investigators, they want no light around. They want it completely dark in there when they do this. So they go and they luminol this bathroom and to their horror, they find that luminol is brightly lit up in that bathroom, the whole bathroom floor, the whole tub and shower area, um, a spot behind that bathroom door. So all accounts would look like someone cleaned up a spill of blood, cleaned up themselves potentially, right? Cleaned up their clothes. Um, but they checked the drains. They checked, I wish there was another word for it. It's just called the P-trap. Have we not found a better word for it at this point? But the P-traps meaning like the little um, in the drains down into the drainage system. They checked all of those. They checked the rest of the drains under the home. They even went so far as to check the sewage lines out of the home into the neighborhood. They found no clothing that was disposed of and they found no traces of blood whatsoever in any of the sewage lines or the drains within the home. Meaning if someone was standing in that bathtub, right, to like take a shower, to rinse themselves before they leave the crime scene, there would be hits of blood in those drainage pipes, right? Mm -hmm. But guess what also pops hot for luminol? Bleach. So had Susan performed her deep clean on Mondays, like she did every Monday, that floor and bathtub could be covered in bleach and it was going to glow for luminol just like blood would. So that's where it gets a little iffy as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Even though yeah. we did see the one blood smudge, right? Like that was there, yes. but it's not yeah. in the drains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, you know, you go back and you look at the small or not small things, but all the things together. Uh, it's tough. I, I, I'll just say that in current time, I think that maybe, I don't know that a lot of agencies probably would move a little slower 
Okay. In that sense. But then again, in, in modern day, you would have a lot more cell phone activity, you know, surveillance cameras right. here and there, ring cameras in a neighborhood. So, so they work for what they have. Do you yeah. have any other big points to bring to me that you want to challenge? I do not. If mm -mm. not. No. I, I, I did just want to say that most detectives work on proof and evidence and not theory and speculation Correct. and stuff like that. So Correct. it's what you can prove and what the evidence Mm, right. So, well, exact, precisely. And I think that that's, again, we're going to wrap it back around, but that's what happens with this case. I'm not saying that I think that David Hendricks is guilty or innocent. I mean, I kind of have some thoughts on it and I have gone back and forth to be fair, as, as I've read about this, it doesn't matter though. The point is, should he have been initially convicted and had he not been initially convicted because there wasn't reasonable doubt, would we be looking at him the same? I do wonder that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Would he have gotten away scot-free without even the slightest inkling that he did this? Um, or would there always be whispers in the community? I have had someone reach out who uh, grew up around this place where this happened. She currently lives just a block or two down, uh, maybe listening now. But And she said, no, like the town believes he did it. And he's always been a creepy dude. And to be fair, I think he is at least a, a creep. Uh, I said at the last show, can you be a creep and not a murderer? Yep, you can. Uh, can you be both? Of course you can. And maybe he's both, or maybe he's just one. Uh, at the least, I do think he was not necessarily a great guy to his wife in that sense. Um, a little bit on the side note is that with those orthotics that he developed and patented, he did have to have them like fitted to people. Again, y'all, this was the eighties. You didn't have Instagram, like whatever influencers, all this crap to like do your stuff and model your stud, whatever. So we had pamphlets, right? Brochures. So you'd go to the local modeling agency and find some girls that would like model your product and put it in a pamphlet to put at the doctor's offices for him, right? For these um, spinal orthotics that he had. So that became a big point of the case in trial is that he had gone a bit wayward with some of these models who were supposed to be uh, being fit tested and then modeling these orthotics and as in like asking them to remove their tops their, their blouses to do this. Uh, they did. He never, um, he never assaulted anyone. None of them said, one girl said that she didn't want to model for him anymore because of this. But outside of that, nobody was completely uncomfortable. They was like, ah, like, you know, he's kind of a weird dude, whatever. And I'm saying that to say that the prosecution tried to use a term of um, escalating sexual aggression. And they have all these models that modeled for him. And when they brought them in to present them to the jury, they kind of manipulated that in the sense that they brought these models in one by one, meaning from the first one that never removed any clothing or was asked to remove clothing from David up to the one that he ultimately tried to like kiss after he massaged, looking like as time went on, he was becoming more and more sexually aggressive to the point that he would fear retribution from his church if he were to abandon his wife. And so then that's why he killed him. And that was the prosecution's argument. Um, but what actually happened was these models were brought in and marched into the jury, not like in an inordinate order like that. That wasn't the order that they actually saw him in. Meaning like the first one or two, he kind of fondled. The next one kept her clothes on the whole time. 
it wasn't in the order they showed. So they were doing a lot of these manipulation tactics and everything they had was circumstantial. So essentially that's the idea of this show is to show that not because I'm trying to plead his innocence, but just to show that with that conviction, there wasn't um, a case beyond reasonable doubt. It was all circumstantial. Mm -hmm. They even went back to the contents we talked earlier on the pizzas that the the pizza kids eaten. We know what mom ate and when she ate it again, listen to part one for all the details there. But we have stomach contents or lack thereof. And we know that the mother's stomach had way more stomach contents located inside it, almost three times more than the children did. We also know that she ate food about two hours after they did. When she was at that baby shower and they were at Chuck E. Cheese, they ate at 7 to 7.30. She ate at 9.30 to 9.40. Um, but somehow she, or excuse me, let me go back let me go back around. She had nothing left in her belly, but they did. And that wouldn't make sense. And then you find out that they start breaking down like the expert witnesses. And now we have technology to show that you can't use stomach contents to precisely pinpoint a time of death. You can use it in a very broad way, but not in a two to four hour span. Because the idea is they're trying to prove that this happened in this two to four hour window that David said he was home before he left. And ultimately, they can't prove it. And they can't. There was nothing. I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm also saying that he, I couldn't have convicted him if I was on the jury. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing. Like when, even before you get to the trial or a jury, just to get the indictment and, and just to, to charge. And And it was at the models when the models were what they already, like one of the investigators night of the night of the, when they went to do the welfare check, see that it's a crime scene. He gets there that night. He said, he's dirty. Like mm-hmm. he smells dirty. And I'm not saying he was wrong. I mean, he had a hunch. Yeah. But either way, it's like you talked about earlier. This isn't a sprint, right? Yeah. It's a marathon. Yeah. No reason to rush. Mm-hmm. And they, they, it's kind of what we talked about before, like the confirmation bias. They already decided he's the guy mm-hmm. and now they got to make it work. So now they're going to use these models and the idea of him, you know, fearing his church's retribution and all these kinds of things. Um, let me just kind of go over a couple of bullet points real quick before we wrap up that we maybe didn't get to when we were talking about the case. Um, all of these things would actually go to your point, but not really. They go to pointing at the fact that maybe he just wasn't really nice of a guy, mm-hmm. but it would be nothing that would prove his guilt in this murder trial. Mm-hmm. Right. So for instance, when he <laughs> went to um, he was being held in jail awaiting trial and he asked for a TV or radio, he didn't even have those at home. Right. But he was asking because he wanted to keep current with the case and wanted access to phones uh, just in case, quote, anyone wanted to reach him to ask about the case. Mm-hmm. If your wife and children are murdered, you're yeah. not going to take strangers phone calls while you're in jail being implicated in that crime. If you did, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, unless he just felt like that's how I got to get my maybe. story out since maybe. if he didn't do it. I mean, right. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, we do know that when they found when they were searching the house on the stairs, they found an old, like a burned matchstick. I say old, but it had been a burned matchstick. There were none others in the house like it. So it, there okay. were no other packs of matches like that. I want to know. So I have a list of questions. Um, I've reached out to the author of a book. We're going to talk about this guy was uh, a news reporter, 
Um, he's done a ton of things, but he happened to get on scene. Then I, someone called him and tipped him off with this crazy murder they heard on this police scanner. They, somehow they got information, right? And so he gets there kind of, he was there when the cops got there, when the brother and brother-in-law were there. He was there when David showed up. And basically he followed this case from start to finish through the trials. And he's written an in-depth book called Reasonable Doubt. Uh, I encourage you to read it. I'm almost done with it. It's very interesting. And he maintains an objective stance on it. Um, but basically he's saying what we're saying here. There, there wasn't, they couldn't prove it beyond reasonable doubt. Not, not trying to say he's innocent or not, mm -hmm. but what I want to ask him as well, or anyone else who would know is that, you know, were there matches like that at the Red Roof Inn in Madison, Wisconsin at that time? Good I don't point. know because yeah. Hotels, motels used to have matchbooks all the time mm -hmm. or restaurants would. He, I know that we know that he went to, there was a Perkins restaurant across the street from the Red Roof Inn and he went there at least twice to get a cup of coffee uh, while he was kind of between calls and stuff for work. Um, we talked about the footprint and in terms of evidence, that's all we got. We do know that he said he changed his clothes. So when they asked him, he left home to go to Wisconsin, right, for, for, mm -hmm. the, for work. So he says that he changed his clothes at a rest area there on Highway 90 uh, just before getting into Madison. When they asked him why, he's like, because he didn't want to drive in his suit, right? Who wants to do that? He didn't want to wrinkle his suit. So he drove in like kind of comfy clothes till he gets close because he's going for work. Mm -hmm. So he drives till he gets a little bit closer to where he's going. Three and a half hour drive, right? Mm -hmm. Stops at a rest area to change into his suit. So now he can get there, check into the hotel and start making these calls. That would work right got a question yeah why not just changing your hotel room i don't know i was just curious i i didn't have that in my notes but mm -hmm. if i'm driving three and a half hours that means in in that would mean i didn't leave my house until much 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 later and then getting into maybe Wisconsin. he could have also so keep in mind he could have been visiting doctors that were working nights at the hospital so that's another thing too okay so All he right. could have shown up at 4 a.m. Um, on a call. And in fact, there's some discrepancy there when you okay. you can see that it works either way, that he checked in the hotel and then left mm -hmm. or that he went straight about his day and gotcha. made some calls. Okay. When I say calls, I mean visiting these people with his product and then back to the hotel. So mm -hmm. you're right about that. And it's a great point to raise. We, meaning we here at this point, don't have the details on that. But he said that he changed actually outside by the car. He didn't go into the restroom. So I don't know if that's a way to get around any witnesses or not. But he said mm -hmm. that it was dark outside. So he just changed by the car. Um, I've probably done far worse. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but what I want to know is, mm -hmm. did they, do we have those clothes? So mm -hmm. pretty quickly upon interviewing him, they made sure that they called the Red Roof Inn in Madison, Wisconsin to make sure that the scene was secure and that it had not yet been cleaned. When they say it has not yet been cleaned, they said, great, close it down. Don't let it in one in. And they get a couple of detectives on the road immediately to, to that hotel room. I can't find anywhere whether or not they did or did not find mm. the clothing he said he was wearing prior mm -hmm. that he changed into a suit from. Um, this one this would be if I were on the prosecution side, still can't convict off of it. That's the thing. There's so many red flags, but not enough yeah. to convict from. None of this proves guilt. Um, when interviewed and he was asked what his license plate. So they ask him, they're like, what's your license plate number? He's sitting there. This is hours after he finds out his wife and children are dead. He immediately says, 
XA7803. Okay. But when he went to the Red Reef Inn and had to list his license plate number for his parking pass, he gave them a number PJ2030. So they asked him why. Mm-hmm. why. Why did you give a different license plate number when you checked into your hotel? And he said, quote, I think that's just a number that came to mind. I didn't look at the license plate number of my car. He wouldn't have to. He just gave it to him. Like he mm-hmm. didn't have to go outside and look at it. He just gave it to him. He says, I didn't look at the license plate number of my car. I think I used to have a license plate number like that. I think I've been using that number for like two or three years. Hmm. But what's the whole point back then in 1983 to give your license tag number to the hotel? Probably for a parking pass. Yeah, exactly. And and if you don't, then potentially you get towed out of their lot. Right. So you would think if you were staying there, you'd be very accurate in your license tag. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Just curious. I mean, wouldn't you think? You think. Wouldn't you think? You think that. So there's that. Yeah. Um, We talked about the idea of the robbery. We talked about uh, mom's timeline. Let's see here. The models. Blah, 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 blah. All right. So this says Jude was here. I'm reading. (laughs) Um, So also, let me ask you this quickly. When it comes to... When it comes to a crime scene like this, mm-hmm. a really terrible, <laughs> terrible thing that happened. And I know that everyone and, and, you know, we try to understand that, that everyone works a different way. Like, I feel like I know how I would act. I don't know. right? I can't imagine how I'd act um, when faced with a situation like this. And so we can't then perceive how others would. I worked in a hospital and I know you've witnessed people with death and dying and people can react in ways that seem odd. But there's no way to, there's no scale for that, right? You you can't really judge that necessarily. But when it's time for them to show crime scene photos of -hmm. these children literally having been hacked up with an ax to their face, do you find that most parents, particularly if you were on trial for that murder, would they choose to, would they want to be in the courtroom or not want to be in the courtroom? The parent that's charged as the murder, well, or just either in way, the parent of the victims. I mean, yeah, but he's I, charged as he's uh, the defendant here, but yeah, I, I don't want to get into personal. I'll just say this: everybody does react differently. I think initially, um, most people do not want to know anything about it at first. They don't want to hear the details. Uh, some of the like cold cases and things people have wanted to see cases that were 10, 15, 20 years old. But I would just say that I would imagine, mm-hmm. I think he was charged, indicted, or he was indicted and then convicted within a year. Mm-hmm. So you're still talking. Yeah. I, usually m- most people do not. Um, so he yeah. did ask to stay in the courtroom when that was shown. Um, uh, you know, whatever. That could go either way. So at the time, Steve Vogel was the news director of on WJBC radio. He's the one that I told you wrote the book called reasonable doubt. Again, read it if you're interested at all. I think he does a very great job of laying out the case, very detail oriented and very objective. Um, We talked about the blood in the bedroom and bathroom. I will tell you one of the things that turned investigators off immediately from David was his mannerisms and his dry reaction. In fact, in the initial interview, hours just within the same night he's not slept yet since this happened and you know they asked him if he killed them and he just said no 
And then a few minutes later, they say, you know, hey, look, we know you did this, right? They're kind of doing the doing the thing just to see how he'll react. And he his response was, why would I kill my family? I love my family. So they were always very turned off at his what seemed like lack of emotion, his very kind of flat affect with it all. Um, but keep in mind that he had an IQ, depending on different sources, between 130 and 135. So this means like you're nearing what we consider almost like genius level. Sometimes with this can come like a lower emotional quotient. It can come a lack of, um, you mm. know, um, personal, personable interaction with other people. So you could kind of sometimes inflect a flat affect or a flat tone. It's possible. Just keep that in mind if you're very smart. We know he is smart because we know his success rate and where he was in his early 20s. Yeah. You'd also want the baseline. So you would want to know mm -hmm. how he would normally just be acting, how he mm -hmm. would talk, how he would. And we don't um, know that. Yeah. You know, we don't know that. Or we don't know that. Right. And maybe right, they yeah. asked that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, motive. We don't know about a motive. Like if it was like, let's say someone other than him, other than maybe money. He did talk about the fact that he bought his house with cash. Um you know, and all of his like toys. I mean, there's not a lot there. Um, we have kind of a difference difference in what people say his reaction was when he learned about the murders. I will say that, um, yeah, Ooh, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I just don't. He, it's not, it's not straightforward it's not one of those which is obviously why we're talking about it and why uh you know the the yeah. case was overturned the only thing i will tell you guys i'm gonna read this as almost my going out piece uh when it comes to oh, i'm sorry my cousin tammy was texting me cool when it comes to what david has had to say in his own words because we don't we haven't had a lot of that yet um the brother-in-law, meaning one of Susan's sister's husbands, okay, so the murdered Susan, her sister's husband, has been looked at. He initially was looked at briefly, like right off the rip, given a polygraph. So there was a, a look, I've told you guys before, I'm not taking a polygraph, okay? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm innocent of everything. I'm not taking one. I don't like it. I don't, I don't like them. I don't trust myself, even if I'm innocent, I get in my head too much to think that I'm going to like warp the results somehow. I don't know. So I don't care about somebody taking one or not taking one. My point is if they wanted the brother-in-law to take one, there was a reason for it. They didn't ask everyone else in the family to. So clearly they were looking at this guy a little bit. They also never investigated anyone other than David. So that does kind of come to your confirmation bias a little bit. But when he was asked, how did you deal with the loss of your family? He says, my hope is that you can't even imagine that pain. But think about being told that your entire family has been murdered and minutes later being hauled into a police station interrogation room and questioned all night long. It hurts like hell and the pain just doesn't go away. Years later, after I was released, a psychologist friend advised me to dwell on my memories and embrace them, even if they cause pain. So I did. And many times they did cause pain. Other times they made me smile and essentially saying it became better as time went on. Uh, he also says some interesting things. This would be ooh, another thing that people don't like. So when he was in prison, it was only for a couple years, but he made good friends with his cellmate, a guy named um, Henry Hillenbrand. 
And he has since written a book. He spent years after he got out of prison, stayed in contact with Henry. Henry is still alive. Henry has actually recently gotten out of prison on appeal, but he went to prison in 1970 for murdering his wife and her lover. Um, not in the same way that, you know, the Hendricks family was murdered whatsoever. There aren't parallels really in any other kind of way, but he did murder his wife and her lover. This was the cellmate of David Hendricks for a brief time. This guy did it. He was apprehended in 19 or convicted in 1970, was in jail for a short time, escaped and was on the lam for like 13 years, came back to prison. And that's when he and David were cellmates. David since has written a book, uh, a, crew, a true crime novel, blah, 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 called Tom Henry, Confession of a Killer. So he was asked about that. And this is something that I've talked to BC about because I thought if my wife and children were murdered and I didn't do it and people thought I did it and I went to prison for it and I've got a cellmate of a man who I know did, he confessed, this guy confessed to it, did murder his wife. I don't want anything to do with this guy, much less am I going to become friends with him and write a book about him. And so he talks about that a little bit here. And he just says that basically the reason he wrote the book is because it was cathartic for him and he did enjoy getting to know Tom when he was in jail with him. Now we're going to discount that. He does say that he wants to write a book about his own family as well in the future. Uh, his brother-in-law will make this one quick was working as an orderly around that time. He was married to Susan's sister. She was asked at the time if he was home that night of November 7th. She said yes. They have since divorced. Now that they are divorced, she has said, I said he was home, but he wasn't. In fact, not long after that, he brought home bloody scrubs for me to wash. When a private investigator that David Hendricks says he hired to talk to this guy about asked him, where did these scrubs come from? He said they came from a doctor at the hospital who had asked him to take them home to watch, wash, which I've worked in a hospital and doctors are not asking orderlies to take their scrubs home to wash, nor are doctors scrubs most often, I can't say never, bloody from head to toe, from collar to ankle in this kind of fashion, right? So he gave the name, he being the brother-in-law, uh, John Lewis is his name, gave the name of this doctor who he says gave him these scrubs to take home and wash. Come to find out that doctor didn't even start work there at the hospital until later on. Like he wasn't even working in the hospital yet. Invested This private investigator talked to this doctor. Uh, the wife, like I said, that now that they've divorced, has come forward with this information there's not much to do with it. Um, no one has since gone after, you know, John Lewis to investigate this or whatnot. Um, he's living his life somewhere. I don't know. He, so he was one that some people speculate David hired him to do this. Some people speculate he did it on his own because he was verbally jealous of the family and their financial status. He would say that some people think that they both did it. So there is, um, we don't have the time to get into that, but some people, there is like the two, killer theory mm -hmm. because you have the knife and the axe. Um, currently the property at 313 Carl drive there in Bloomington, Illinois is um, 
here for anyone who wants it. It's about 3,500 square feet, four bed, two and a half bath. It was last sold in 2020 for $179,000. Um, and it needs some updates because I looked at it online today. I couldn't, when I looked up the county's property tax records, all I could find was the last sale prior to that. That was February of 92 for $102,000. So can't mm -hmm. imagine living in it though. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, Carly is saying she can see John Douglas write about killers and, and all these kinds of things. Um, but the convicted shouldn't get to make the money. Agreed. Uh, but I will say that, uh, there was the behavioral analysis unit that came out to give like a profile on who they thought did this. Um, and that one gets weird because it, it's basically like if I told you who David Hendricks was and then you wrote a report about him. And so I'm not saying, in fact, if you've ever heard me um, on this show before, I actually rant and rave about the BAU. I really enjoy the idea behind it. The psychology behind it intrigues me a ton. But this one's interesting because it talks about this points to like a religious fanatic XYZ, which I'm not sure how the crime scene does. Of course, they're above my pay grade in that scene. I don't know. But if you didn't know this about David Hendricks, would this have been in that report in that kind of way yeah. it was it was very specific mm -hmm. i know a lot are specific in terms of demographics and age range and um you know maybe your success or you know not at a job or you know interpersonal relationships but when this one got down to like being submissive or dominant and or you know this religious whatever i don't know mm -hmm. it just seemed very much like it was tailored to this family, but not necessarily because that's and, the evidence. They got. And I could, well, I don't want to get too far into it, but I, I could be wrong, but I don't think when people are doing profiling, they're supposed to know anything really about any potential suspects. They shouldn't. Yeah. And this wasn't, I mean, at this point we knew that, you know, there've been profiles at that point for about 20 years, right? In 83. Um, mm. Oh, they did the profile in 83. Or you mean the murder? I mean, we know the murder occurred in 83. But do you know when they did the profile? Yeah, they did it when they were when they were trying to. Yeah, it was when around the same time. Yeah. Oh, so they were really only a couple of years in. Maybe two, three. Why am I thinking in the 60s? What am I thinking happened mm -hmm. in the 60s? Uh, a lot happened. But yeah, BAU, all that. No, no. <laughs> Douglas, wrestler, all that. That was like uh, 78, 79, 80, 81. Oh, am I the McDonald's trad? Was that the 60s? Yes, probably. I think that's 63. That's what I'm yeah, thinking of. Could be right about that. So. Sorry. Okay. So then they were new into it, meaning they may have known the case before they made the profile. Not intentionally. Yeah. Not but they no, were trying yeah. to do that, but they could have known right. about the case before they made the profile. And then yeah. their vision was a little. Because you don't want there. anything to taint it. And not of even course, on purpose. Yeah. You but if it was in. that fresh, mm -hmm. meaning, meaning the behavioral analysis reports that they started doing yes. if it was that fresh then potentially yeah there's some kinks in those chains Could i don't be. know yeah uh you guys okay so imperial girl saying so confused about the two weapons thing it does seem strange so the butcher knife was used to slit the throats okay so a lot of their throats were slit um and the axe was used as you can imagine to their faces and necks um think about it either way maybe the axe was the first blow that's how they stayed asleep and then i think like you've pointed out the next um throats were slit so that they could die quicker. Um, or just confirmation that, yes, they're they're definitely right. dead. Yeah. 
Right. I'm sure there's so much here like that. I'm sure I do it every week, y'all. Like this, the show airs on a Tuesday. I can promise you, if you want to text me on a Wednesday morning, shoot me a message, be like, what'd you forget? I'll be like, oh, this, this, and this. There's always something. So tomorrow morning, I'll be like, oh, I didn't even cover, you know, whatever it is. There's always something else. But this at least gives you, I think, the the most of mm -hmm. it. And do you have any closing arguments, prosecution? I don't. I, it was, that's tough. So would you yeah. say mm -hmm. that... You guys, maybe I wasn't as detailed as possible, but the, what I've given you is what prosecution had. Like that, this was their case. It was based on the models saying that he was, you know, not even he, he didn't rape them. He wasn't even aggressive with them, just like he wanted them to take their tops off. We got that and we've got stomach contents, which we have learned that weren't even then we learned was not an exact science. That's it. It was all circumstantial. There's nothing physical. There was nothing timeline wise that that was, you know, bumped this wrong for whatever he said. I'm not saying uh, that he's innocent or guilty. Uh, I I mean, I, I messaged the man the other mm -hmm. night and he was um, apologetic for not getting back immediately. He had been in the pool swimming with his children. He is now married, living in Florida with two younger children. Uh, let him know I was covering the case. Uh, he said he doesn't really do a lot of these kinds of things. Uh, otherwise, he was glad that it was getting coverage. Either way, he did it or he didn't. But the point just goes back to our justice system and what we have. And I, I just don't think there was room for a conviction, regardless of his guilt or innocence, to start with. Would yeah. you say there was a way? I to mean, yeah, him? from the outside perspective of a citizen who's reading this and yeah, I, I don't We know. know you weren't there. <laughs> well, You're say, not going to say, say the wrong thing. Well, I know, but I just, I say that just for that reason. Um, I, I, there are some comments in here about all the detail that you put into your cases. Um, and I would, con I would agree. That, you yeah. concur. That's what I, I about to say concur, but that's some. Nerd um, so Imperial girl just asked anything violent about him prior. No, we have nothing, nothing, no reports of that. I've looked into that. I've not seen. The only thing I can actually find is something later. He actually, he's married now to a fourth wife. I didn't mention the second and third because they both happened really quickly. One of which that he had been in um, conversation with while he was in prison. And he'll say now that he got out and immediately married her. And then basically immediately realized that was not the right thing to do. There was another quick stint with another lady that kind of came and went. Um, and then he basically said like, he had to kind of like he if if what he is saying is true that he had never properly mourned he had never properly grieved per his psychologist so he took the time to do that sounds like he even says like you he said that you hear about men going through a midlife crisis and buying the red sports car he's like oh i did that you know like i i think he kind of went wild for a little while had these couple of wives but the wife he has now he's been married to for over 15 years uh, they do have children. He did not think he could have more children. He actually had a vasectomy pretty much right after he got out of prison. Uh, when he got settled down with her, they did do the reversal, but then didn't think it would work either way. They have the kids now. Um, and I can't, I can't find anything about any prior violence. There's an argument or there's a, a talk about in this one neighborhood, he and his wife got in an argument outside the home and, you know, this stuff is like, it's hearsay. I mean, you know, it, it's really subjective when someone says, yeah, I didn't like his stance and his tone and the way he talked to her. He totally did it. Well, maybe he totally did it. I'm not saying he didn't. But also none of this says for sure that he murdered his family with an axe.
maybe he did. You know what I mean? But like none of none of this points to the fact yeah. that we can prove that he did. So um, I don't know, you know. Yes, fourth. It's his fourth marriage, but this one's lasted at least a while. I don't know. He calls her his second true love. Mm. <laughs> but we'll we'll take it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, all right. Well, love you guys. Y'all are so great. I know it's late. Thank you for you guys that were in the live chats for bearing with us. Uh it's these days it's baseball season uh for the kiddos. So some of my live shows are gonna happen a little bit later like that. BC, thank you for being co-host. Thank co you for having me. I was going to say uh, co-hostess with the mostest, but that's not cool. I'll take it. Okay. No, uh, no. Hostess? Oh. Okay. Man, oh. I'm secure. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, you guys can find BC over at his podcast, which is called The Disruptors with BC and Ski. Uh, he also has his own Instagram with the same name, and they have a YouTube channel, again, with that same name. So um, you can find me at Andrea Uplate on YouTube or Instagram. Uh, Y'all, we have some new shirts that are about to come out and maybe some stickers. You got some new stuff, Merch? Uh, yes. <laughs> I was I'll trying to catch up on time. the comments. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, we'll have new merch coming out. Um, we actually had a guitar player for Kings Never Die and Stigma. Oh, nice. For those who like music, wearing the shirt. Uh, was playing at a show. Agnostic Front's lead singer jumped up on stage. He and Vinny were singing. Anybody in New York hardcore scene knows what I'm talking about. But I'll post some pictures from really, really cool. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have some new shirts coming Very out. Cool. Hats, that sort of thing. Love it. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, y'all are awesome. And, uh, let, hey, come back and give me some opinions on this. I want to hear what y'all have to say when I can actually sit down and kind of read through it. So throw it on Instagram or do whatever. And uh, I think we're going to sign off now on this late Tuesday night. But y'all are great. And we will see y'all next Tuesday. It always takes me like 12 seconds.